For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at John 20, verse 1 through 31, which I entitled, He is not here, he is risen, which comes from the Gospels, one of the reactions that the apostles had as they found the empty tomb. And from this, I want to be able to look at two facts of the resurrection. Let's begin by, first of all, thinking about some implications of the resurrection. First of all, the resurrection distinguishes a common crucified criminal in the first century from God's Savior. N.T. Wright, who wrote the definitive work on the resurrection, states, After Jesus of Nazareth had been executed, anybody two days, three days, three weeks, or three years after that, would never have said he was the Messiah unless something extraordinary had happened to convince them that God had vindicated him. And I think that N.T. Wright is correct. If Jesus hadn't been raised, then what's the point of us being here? We're talking about a historical figure who simply died in the first century. Secondly, Jesus' bodily resurrection validated his sacrifice on the cross. One of the things that the Bible teaches is that God showed that he was validating Jesus' death on the cross, payment for our sin, by raising Jesus from the dead. And we see this even when we go all the way back to the Old Testament. When you go to the Old Testament, you see that God sets up these different sacrificial systems, which were symbolic of what God would ultimately do through Jesus Christ. The sacrificial system took its greatest expression in the yearly Day of Atonement, where the high priest of Israel would gather the entire congregation of Israel, and he would symbolically take the sins of the people and confess it upon an unblemished lamb. And this signified from God's perspective that he was taking the moral wrongdoing of the people and transferring it symbolically onto this innocent victim. Then he would go and take this innocent lamb and slaughter it and offer a sacrifice to God. And so this was a picture of what ultimately Jesus would do. Now, if the high priest emerged from the most holy place alive... It indicated that God had accepted his sacrifice on behalf of the people. And likewise, when Jesus died and was raised from the dead, it validated that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. So Jesus' resurrection carries with it incredible significance in that it gives us confidence of our salvation. Thirdly, Jesus' resurrection is one of the most important events in history, second really only to his death on the cross. As I stated earlier, without Jesus' resurrection, we would have no confidence that God indeed paid for our sin through Jesus' death. With that, why don't we jump into our passage, John 20, Starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, in the Jewish week, 
Sunday actually began the first day of the week since the Sabbath was on Saturday. So it was early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, this was plausible because in AD 41, Emperor Claudius actually gave an edict saying that anybody who was caught engaging in grave robbery would be executed. This was a common practice where they would break into these tombs and steal items that families would leave for their loved ones. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, the author, John, often refers to himself in the third person. So most scholars believe that this other disciple is actually referring to John. So Peter and John run to the tomb. Peter is lagging a little bit behind because John was probably about 16 years old. Peter was an older man, and we know that from extra biblical sources that he was a burly man, a little heavier set, probably ate a few too many falafels or something like that. And he bent over and looked into, in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, was, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. So breathless, Simon Peter finally arrives at the tomb. And we're told in verse 6 and 7 that Peter saw the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. He saw the strips of linen lying there. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. Now, students of the Bible recognize two miracles here. The first is Jesus' resurrection. The second is that a single man managed to fold his own clothes. (laughs) Now, there is an interesting textual note here. John writes here that Peter saw the strips of linen lying there. Now, this word in Greek isn't the typical word for to look, blepo. Instead, he uses the Greek word theoreo, which means to observe something with sustained attention. This is actually where we get the word to theorize. And so Peter pondered what he saw. We're told in another account in Luke chapter 24, verse 12, that bending over, Peter saw the strips of linen lying there by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, skeptics of the Bible often suggest that the disciples were overcome with this grief-stricken delirium that caused them to believe that they saw the risen Jesus They were so despondent about following Jesus and seeing him die that there was this expectancy that Jesus would eventually rise from the dead. And so they fooled themselves into thinking they saw Jesus. And yet that's just the opposite of the reaction that Peter has. He doesn't expect for Jesus to be raised from the dead. He sat there and he observed and pondered what it meant. He felt confused. You see, I think a lot of people believe that Christianity is all about blind faith. But in fact, 
Christianity is a faith that is based in concrete evidence, especially the empty tomb. And so as Tim Keller puts it, faith is obviously more than thinking and reasoning, but not less. And so this leads us to the first fact of this resurrection account, that is the empty tomb. And there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest that the tomb was indeed empty. And that's an important fact because if the opponents of Christianity could simply provide a body, then this idea that Jesus had raised from the dead would be extinguished immediately. The first thing that we notice is that there's no veneration of Jesus' tomb. During Jesus' lifetime, there were about 50 prophets' tombs that actually acted as places of worship for Jewish followers. And yet, if you go to Israel today, there's much confusion about where Jesus' tomb lies. There are different theories about it, but nobody really knows. What's very clear, though, is that nobody, even from the time of Jesus' death, worshipped at what they thought was his tomb. Second, the reference to Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. In all four of the gospel accounts, we see that the gospel authors mention this man named Joseph of Arimathea. And from what we can tell in the gospels, this man held a high role, a prominent role in the Jewish ruling council. And so it makes you wonder, why would the disciples, if they were trying to invent an account of Jesus rising from the dead, why would they say that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, came into Pontius Pilate's presence and asked for Jesus' body in order to bury it in his own tomb? If they were inventing that account, it would be very easy to verify that detail and discredit the disciples' testimony. Finally, the presence of women is very odd in the eyewitness accounts of the empty tomb. In all of the Gospels, the first people to arrive and witness the empty tomb were women. Now, unlike today, in the first century, it was a patriarchal society. And women's testimony held really no value in a court of law. Indeed, the second century philosopher and skeptic of Christianity wrote in his scathing criticism of Christianity that how could any rational man believe, quote, the testimony of a hysterical woman? And so it would seem very odd that the disciples who were writing or trying to fabricate an account of this empty tomb would place an embarrassing detail like women discovering the empty tomb. In fact, it makes the disciples look cowardly while making these women seem courageous. That's not something you would do if you were trying to write an account to bolster your credibility as a religious leader. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went inside and he saw and believed. Presumably, he saw the empty tomb and he realized in his, in his mind that Jesus was raised from the dead. Verse 10 and 11, the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. 
As she wept, he bent over, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Have you ever had that feeling where you're standing there talking and you notice or feel the presence of somebody right behind you? Dear woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. She still didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father to my God and your God. He says, don't cling on to me physically. Instead, go to your brothers and tell them what you've seen. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them all that he had said to her in those things. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, were told that Jesus came and stood among them. So the disciples were afraid because they knew that the opponents of Jesus were hunting all of his disciples. So they stood in this locked room and they're probably talking about the grief that they feel over Jesus dying. And Jesus came standing among them. You can just imagine the, the fear that struck them. He said to them, peace be with you. And I'm sure that they probably thought to themselves, are we seeing things? Are we hallucinating? Did somebody put something in the hummus? <laughs> After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And so this brings us to the second fact of the resurrection account. The eyewitness testimony of the risen Christ. I think Paul gives us a great eyewitness list in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 8, where he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are, who are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for them dying. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So Paul furnishes us with a pretty impressive list of eyewitnesses. First of all, he says that Peter saw the risen Christ. Now, one of the real strange things about Peter, if you read through the Gospels, at the very end, Peter was afraid to even admit that he knew Jesus. In fact, on three occasions, he denied even knowing Jesus when Jesus was arrested right before his death on the cross. And what we see is a complete transformation. Peter 
who was cowering when people asked him whether or not he knew Jesus at the end of the Gospels, turns into this bold proclaimer of Jesus Christ at the very beginning of Acts. So what happened between this time period where Jesus died on Passover and then 50 days later on the day of Pentecost was this bold proclaimer? What transformed this cowering country bumpkin into really one of the great leaders of the early church? He must have seen something. He must have seen the risen Christ. Paul also says that the 12 saw Jesus as well, as our account indicates. And even though they scattered throughout the Roman Empire, they played a prominent role in the early church's development. After that, we're told that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are, who are still living. Now, this is an interesting detail because the Corinthian church raised questions about the credibility of Jesus rising from the dead. They faced a lot of the same skepticism that people in our day face about Jesus' resurrection. And yet, Paul is taunting his audience, saying, there are 500 brothers and sisters who saw Jesus on several different occasions independently, most of whom are still living today. Now, most skeptic scholars agree that Paul the Apostle probably wrote this epistle and that it was one of the earliest written letters in the New Testament, written around AD 51. So that is about 18 years after Jesus died. Most of the people who had seen Jesus were still alive and Paul was saying, if you want, you can go and interview these people yourself. If you want to know whether they actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. He also includes Jesus' half-brother, James. Which is pretty incredible because when James and Jesus' family appear in the gospel accounts, they were skeptical about his claim to be the Son of God. You know, many of you grew up with an older brother. How many of you ever felt the temptation to worship your older brother? <laughs> or ever confused him with the Son of God? Let me rephrase that. What, what would it take to persuade you that your older brother was God's chosen one? Something miraculous. <laughs> to persuade you of that. And from what we can gather, James and his family were skeptical about Jesus being the Messiah until after Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And it's likely that James saw the risen Christ and realized that all of his claims were true. Finally, Paul says, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. A little bit of background on Paul. Paul was a virulent persecutor of the church. In fact, he knew about this resurrection account. He heard about the eyewitness testimony, and yet he still did not believe. When Jesus finally met him on the road to Damascus, Paul was actually heading toward Damascus in order to persecute more Christians. And what we see is that he takes this 180-degree turn 
as he has this encounter with Jesus and becomes one of the great Christian leaders of the early church. And so when you look at this eyewitness testimony, it's overwhelming. Now, most of us uh, really, and what we know of history, comes from eyewitness testimony. You know, think about what you would know if you relied exclusively on your exhaustive powers of, of uh, you know, surveillance. You're, you're just scanning the world and thinking to yourself, okay, this is the only thing that I can reliably believe. You, you would know virtually nothing. You know, most of you probably woke up this morning, you looked at your newspaper, you read some news online, you turned on your cable news network of choice, and it told you some facts about things that were happening throughout the world. And, you know, you didn't stop to think to yourself, okay, well, did my favorite sports team actually win last night? We rely on eyewitness testimony. In fact, eyewitness testimony is so powerful that we can actually convict people based solely upon eyewitness testimony. If there were three people who independently corroborated a report that they saw an individual walk into a convenience store and shoot the clerk, that would be enough to convict that person. And so that really shows us the power of eyewitness testimony. Now, of course, skeptics have a variety of different alternate explanations. And there are too many to list here, but I want to give you probably the two most plausible, at least in my opinion. The first would be the stolen body theory. That the disciples were despondent, they were grief-stricken, and all of their hopes that they had placed in Jesus being their Messiah was crushed the moment the Romans killed him. And so what they decided to do was they came and overpowered the two Roman guards guarding the entrance of Jesus' tomb, and they stole his body and made up an, an account that Jesus raised from the dead. Now, there are a few problems with this. The first is that it doesn't really make much sense when you look at the disciples' lives for them to do something like this. They didn't have the motive to, to do this. When you look at the disciples, after Jesus' death, many of them lived as homeless people, vagrants traveling, spreading the word of God. They were persecuted. In fact, extra-biblical sources tell us that all of the disciples, except for John the Apostle, actually died as a result of their faith. And there was actually a way out for Christians if they, if they were caught spreading the news of Christianity. The Roman law stated that if you simply denounced your faith in Christ, that they would let you free. And yet, we read about accounts in the first and second century of many people, many Christians, going to their death as a result of their belief in Christ. You think about somebody who maybe even is mentally ill, has delusions, you know, they might die for something they truly believe is true, even though it's actually false. But even somebody who is mentally ill in that way would never believe something that they knew was actually a lie. The point being, really, when you think about it, 
people don't, aren't willing to sacrifice their lives for things that they know are a lie. And so really there's no motive here for the disciples to lie about seeing the raised Jesus. Secondly, we know that there was a risk of damnation. Unlike today where people would fabricate something like this in order to gain a following. In the ancient world, especially in the Jewish world, to think that you would create a new religion and claim that this individual, a human being, was actually God, was actually blasphemy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 and 15, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified that God raised Christ from the dead. And so, there was a risk of eternal separation for blasphemy. The other theory that many skeptics put forward is what's called the swoon theory. The belief that Jesus actually didn't die, that when they took him off of the cross, he revived, he regained his health, and eventually led the early Christian movement. Now, there are a number of problems with this. First of all, the Romans were really good at a lot of things, but the thing that they were best at was killing people. And... We know that there are no stories or historical accounts that suggest that anybody actually survived the crucifixion. What they would do to a crucifixion victim beforehand is they would flog them with what's called the flagrum, a leather whip that contained pieces of bone and metal at the ends. And this savage beating would ensure that the victim would die. And so, it's very unlikely that Jesus survived this event. In fact, most skeptical scholars agree that Jesus both existed and died. Take, for example, Bart Ehrman, who is a critic of Christianity. He's a professor at UNC of religious studies and a New Testament expert. He says the New Testament authors were obviously and understandably biased in what they reported. But their central claims about Jesus as a historical figure, that he was a Jew with followers executed on orders of the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, are borne out by later sources with a completely different set of biases. In other words, all of the facts of Jesus' life, the basic outline, it's all corroborated by extra-biblical sources, people who are not even Christians. And Bart Ehrman doesn't see the New Testament as inspired by God. In fact, he sees that there are many contradictions in the Bible and his claim that he's actually an atheist. And some of the sources he's probably referring to would be, first of all, this first-century Roman historian Tacitus in his book called The Annals. He says, Christus was put to death by Pontius Pilate procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. And so he documents how this religion spread based on the allegation that this individual Christus or Christ raised from the dead. 
And so when you look at all these different theories, I think that we can probably dismiss them based on the fact that they don't have enough evidence and it doesn't really show us the disciples' motive for lying about these appearances that they say uh, they saw with, with Jesus raised from the dead. Now, some people might say, look, I'm not saying that these theories are plausible, but really anything is more plausible than believing that Jesus raised from the dead. Because after all, when we say that Jesus raised from the dead, then we're appealing to the supernatural. But we have to think that when somebody does that, they're not dismissing the resurrection based on historical grounds. They're doing so on philosophical grounds. When you look at these accounts, when you look at the evidence, I think that the best explanation for the empty tomb, for the disciples saying that without a doubt they believe that they saw Jesus raised from the dead is in fact that they actually believed it. You know, after all, they risked life and limb insisting the tomb was empty because they truly believed that Jesus had risen. C.F.D. Mule, who's actually uh, a New Testament scholar, says, if the coming into existence of the Nazarenes, the Christians, a phenomenon undeniably attested by the New Testament, rips a great hole in history, a hole the size, the shape of the resurrection, what do secular historians propose to stop it up with? The birth and rapid rise of the church remain an unresolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself. That is that Jesus raised from the dead. Well, going to verse 24, now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, he John uses the word told him, which is in the progressive present in Greek, which means they continually kept telling and insisting, he's risen, we saw him. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and if I can put my finger where the nails were, and my hands into his side, I will not believe. You know, Thomas was a skeptic. And I can kind of relate to him. I was very skeptical about Christianity before I actually started investigating. A week later, his disciples went into the house again and Thomas was with them. Through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. You know, you imagine the disciples are, are huddled together in this room again, locked. Thomas is present this time. And Jesus is standing there again. He's always got a flair for, you know, his introduction into a room. And so he says to Thomas, hey, Thomas, were you saying something? <laughs> you can imagine the shock on Thomas's face. He said to Thomas, Put your finger here. You can, imagine, you can imagine Jesus grabbing Thomas's hand. He said, put your fingers right here. The nail marks still in my hand. Reach out your hand. Put them in my side. 
Stop doubting and believe. You know, when we think about Thomas, a lot of times we give him a a bad rap. In fact, a lot of people have dubbed Thomas, doubting Thomas. You know, in one account in John 11, when Lazarus, Jesus' friend, died, Jesus said, we're going to go travel and see Lazarus. And at the time, the Jewish leaders were hunting Jesus and his followers. And so the disciples were naturally afraid. Thomas said, yeah, maybe we should go to Lazarus and see him at his grave so that we may also join him in his death. You know, that gives you sort of a window of insight into Thomas and his sort of personality. But even though we give Thomas a bad name or a bad rap sometimes, he gives us, he furnishes us with one of the greatest proclamations in the New Testament about Jesus and his, and his being. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas understood. As the gears were likely whirling in his head, it all came together and he realized who Jesus was. Finally. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, I want to think for a moment about what is at stake if the resurrection never actually happened. I think it's a helpful exercise. If Jesus wasn't raised, then our faith is meaningless. You know, many Bible teachers will tell you, You know, it doesn't really matter that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. It doesn't matter whether or not the empty tomb was a historical fact. What matters is that Jesus rose in our hearts. What matters is the Easter faith. And yet what Paul would say to that is, if Jesus was not raised, then our our faith is meaningless. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is completely worthless. You're wasting your time. You know, you think about somebody who absolutely believes in something that's completely false. We don't look at that person and think it's so admirable that this person, even though they're an adult, still believes in the tooth fairy. It's amazing that this person holds so much faith in a flat earth theory. And in the same way, for us to devote our entire lives, place our faith in something that is patently false like the resurrection in Christianity, then as Paul says, if our hope is in Christ only for this life, then we are to be pitied more than anyone else in the world. We're to be pitied. You know, it's not admirable. It's not great that we have faith in something that's false. We're to be pitied. We're wasting our time. I just wasted 40 minutes of your time. You're welcome. (laughs) You know, if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then we have no guarantee of our future resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 and 18, if Christ has not been raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In the Eastern view of the afterlife, an individual goes through cycles of death and rebirth called reincarnation. 
And each time you go through this cycle, the, the slate is wiped clean. You don't remember your past life. And when you finally reach the epitome of this cycle, nirvana or moksha, your existence is snuffed out. Or your life is like a droplet placed into a vast ocean. And so in the Eastern concept of the afterlife, there's no continuity between this life and the next. What's most painful about that is that those who have died, we will never see them again. Once we die, our existence will disappear from this earth. After several generations, all evidence that you existed, your footprint in history will disappear. And yet what the Bible offers is something completely different. A promise of continuity. Not only in this life, but a promise of a better one. Not only continuity in relationships, but one where we get to enjoy them forever in the presence of God. Randy Alcorn in his book entitled Heaven tells this story when five-year-old Emily Kimball was hospitalized and heard she was going to die, she started to cry. Even though she loved Jesus and wanted to be with him, she didn't want to leave her family behind. Then her mother had an inspired idea. She asked Emily to step through a doorway into another room. She closed the door behind her. One at a time, the entire family started coming through the door to join her. Her mother explained that this is how it would be. Emily would go ahead to heaven, and then the rest of the family would follow. Emily understood she would be the first to go through death's door. Eventually, the rest of the family would follow, probably one by one, joining her on the other side. Think about this story. It's a touching story of hope. But if this is false, if Jesus never really raised from the dead, this is not an inspiring story of hope. It's a travesty. It's a lie. But if it's true, it's something that we can place our hope in. So what if Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, John concludes in John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You know, many of you may have gone to church growing up, and you may have believed a lot of things about the Bible, you may believe that if you lived a good life and if you tried the best that you possibly could, outweighing the bad things you've done with the good things that you've done, that maybe, maybe God would accept you. But that's not true. The Bible says that there is nothing you can do to ever earn your way to God because we stand guilty 
We owe God a tremendous moral debt because of our moral wrongdoing. But God is loving. He's merciful. He doesn't want to see anyone perish, but he wants to see all experience eternal life. The great news about Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection is that Jesus died to pay for your sins. And if you decide to receive that payment from God on your behalf, God says that you can experience an afterlife with him. There you have John 20, verse 1 through 31. Jesus, we thank you that you rose from the dead. We thank you that you've accomplished your work on the cross and that your Father validated the work that you have done. I pray, Lord, for those of us who may not know you personally, who may be skeptical about Christianity. I pray that this would start us along the journey of investigation and considering the evidence that you provide, not only about the empty tomb and, and these eyewitness accounts of, of you being raised from the dead, but also the, the bountiful evidence that's available, which gives us, I think, a faith that is grounded in facts and in reason. And finally, Lord, I pray for those of us who may have been wrestling with this for a while now, who have been considering whether or not they should place their faith in you, just like Thomas. I pray that this morning, those individuals would turn to you and in faith receive the forgiveness, the payment that you procured for us on the cross. And we thank you for anybody who did that. In Jesus' name, amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.